Quiet, numbskulls. I'm broadcasting. TGIF, it's Manson Mitchell with Gary Manson, Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to jumpstart your weekend. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Thank you, Eric Kramer. Happy Friday. Start of your weekend, start of ours. Glad you're with us. I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. Together, we are Mance and Mitchell in your ears for the hour, and we are ably assisted, as always, of a Friday by bad boy Benny Mathers at the board. How are you doing, Benny? Um, actually, you got. I know that it was recorded by a group called Steam. Okay, we'll go with that. <laughs> our 10-year our veteran quarterback. Yes. Oh, Russell oh, Wilson. There you go. Well, okay, bye. so what, since that's the bye case, bye. then uh, what are going out to break music is going to be what Rocky Mountain High or something? Like hey, that? who doesn't love some John Denver? Basically, uh, yeah, he's off to Denver and a couple picks, so it's been a good run. Right. Ten years. I thought you would have come at me with that, Gary. Oh, you, you just you caught me off guard. Very good there, and we uh, Russell Wilson is one of the true gentlemen yeah. of the sporting world, and I, I wish him well in his new Rocky Mountain Redoubt there in Denver. <laughs> I wish him well, and, and hopefully the Seahawks are going to reconstitute themselves. It'll be they'll be looking like a brand new team, Benny. Uh, pretty much. I think we got uh, two first round picks, two fourth round picks, and another a three third round pick or something. So it's like, yeah, you, you're exactly right. A whole new team coming at us. That deal also included, I believe it was half a dozen names chosen at random from the Denver phone book are also right. coming out to Seattle. <laughs> there Knowing they, Denver, they, got... they still use a phone book there. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you talk no, about a blockbuster deal. Wow. Well, this yeah. is great. Today, well, we've got Hank Garrett with us yeah. today. Now, he's he's probably still in the afterglow of the Los Angeles Rams victory. Could they be. won the Super Could Bowl. Be. They are the reigning champions, and we'll find out where his proclivities lie. He's a New York guy, though, so you never know. You and I were so excited about having Hank Garrett back again. This will be his fourth visit. Yes. We've had him on three times. He's written a phenomenal book. He is a celebrity who knows celebrities. We have so many questions for him today. I'm going to do his bio, and it's a little bit long, but it, it's a, a nice little introduction in case, and it's hard to imagine that somebody may have missed the other three interviews. I can't believe that. But just in case, this is Hank Garrett. He was brought up in a Harlem cold water walk-up tenement apartment with two half-brothers, dilapidated furniture, and irregular meals. Life on the streets was tough. The only way to survive was to fight at school, at home, and hanging out on the stoop. At nine, Hank got sucker punched and had his nose broken by a total stranger. By 12, Hank was carrying a 25 caliber handgun, and by 13, he was pumping iron and seriously studying martial arts. At 17, he became a professional wrestler and competed against the top wrestlers on the national circuit. He had a fan club and even escorted Audrey Hepburn to a gala Hollywood-style event. Hank now had the showbiz bug. Through the kindness and tough love of one Willie Bryant, known as the mayor of Harlem, Hank began to realize that the street life wasn't for him. He had a chance through his talents to get away and become something more, an entertainer. Willie Bryant arranged a life-changing meeting with none other than Sammy Davis Jr., who sat down the young, rough-edged Hank and told him he had to make a choice, the thug life or showbiz. He couldn't do both. Hank threw away his gun and picked up a microphone. 
after a brief stint as a real-life police officer, an old friend told him about an acting job he thought would be perfect for him. So he auditioned for a television police officer role on Car 54, Where Are You? Hank sat down in front of Nat Hyken, and Nat immediately said, you're Officer Ed Nicholson, to which Hank replied, no, I'm Officer Hank Garrett. <laughs> Nat then said, you're exactly the kind of dummy I need to play Nicholson. You're hired. Hank was 19 years old and starring with some of TV's most recognizable stars, including Fred Gwynn and Al Lewis, who went on to the Munsters after Car 54. Exposure on national television opened all kinds of new opportunities for Hank as a stand-up comet. He opened for Tony Bennett for four years. He also opened and toured with Duke Ellington, Count Basie, and Dinah Washington. Hank was the first white comedian to appear at the famed Apollo Theater in Harlem. He went on to not only star on TV shows, including Columbo, he also had a very memorable role in Three Days of the Condor. His brutal fight scene with Robert Retford has been voted as the best fight scene of all time. But his most memorable fight was when none other than the king himself, Elvis Presley, asked Hank to spar with him in a Las Vegas gym just for fun. Hank's career has spanned nearly six decades as a comedian, actor, voiceover artist, and as a Hall of Fame martial arts and wrestling legend. His book is From Harlem Hoodlum to Hollywood Heavyweight. And Gary, you and I are thrilled once more to say hello to Hank Garrett. We've got more stories to share. Hello, Hank. Hello, hello, hello. <laughs> listening to all this I'm i like, know who did all that I like to meet this guy. exactly exactly i don't i, I want to get my butt beat no way man <laughs> i'm saying over here <laughs> if i may i want to tell you something about wrestling in denver oh <laughs> okay let's start there mile high city me and another gentleman another wrestler we're working out and we're having really a tough time now we get in the ring, we're gonna, we're gonna go at each other. And we stood there and said, ah, what are we gonna do now? We had a contest about who was gonna pass out first. <laughs> oh my God. That would make oh. sense. <laughs> that brings up a story, Hank. Okay, I can't top you, but I'll try to match you on this. Oh. I've always been, uh, I was long a fan and actually went to the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, where I studied mass media. It's a part of my education that I actually still use. And there I was a, an avid fan of the running rebels back in their glory days. And they were coached by the late, great Jerry Tarkanian. Well, when the, the final four was in Denver in 1990, March Madness, and then on April 2, UNLV won the national championship in Denver. In the run-up to that tournament, someone asked Jerry Tarkanian, who was famous for his quips, how his team, the running Rebels, with all of the speed, because that was their style, how were they going to handle the thin air, the altitude of Denver? And Jerry Tarkanian, being Jerry Tarkanian, said, well, I don't know that it's going to affect us so much. They play the games indoors. 
And and everybody thought, oh, that's just Tark the Shark. Man, listen to him. He's so funny, that coach Tarkanian. What they didn't know, what they didn't know was that Jerry Tarkanian, and he didn't talk about it, he anticipated that this was going to be the team that could make the final four. And uh, he was determined he was going to win the championship at all costs. He actually had his team running, and this was in Las Vegas, before they even began each basketball practice. He had them running wind sprints, running 220 yards, acting like track stars before they ever hit the hardwood floor to practice for the games. And the players could never understand it. Why are we doing this? Jerry Tarkanian was good with a quip, but he knew that that air was going to be thin. And he said to his team as they approached the tournament, they may beat us, but nobody's going to outrun us. And they won the championship in record fashion. They scored 103 points, won by 30 points, never been equaled before or since. That was the most dominating championship performance ever in the history of the NC2A big dance. And it happened in Denver where Jerry Tarkanian anticipated that the air would be thin and they had to find a way to win without changing their style of play. So there you go, Denver. How smart. Wow. Wow. Okay. And and of all the story, there's a story for you. You have, we could fill the rest of our hour together as Suzanne did. And let me tell you something, Hank, there is a great implied compliment for her reading that lengthy bio. It's very un-Mitchell like for Suzanne to do this. I refuse to read. If I read more than 50 words, she starts going tick tock, Gary, tick tock with the bio. Let's get into the interview. And here it's like the the greatest story ever told she's reading here. Oh, that's wonderful. That's a mark of our affection for you, Hank. We're so delighted that you are with us and with you we can start absolutely anywhere let me do this let me go ahead and be arbitrary here for a second i want to ask hank for a story here man this is going to be great it is almost unanimously agreed throughout the entertainment world that the tonight show never had nor probably could ever have as good a host as johnny carson johnny carson was very i just read this yesterday hank this was part of my show prep inadvertently but nevertheless Johnny Carson was this smooth cat. Everybody knows him for that. But Ed McMahon told an interviewer years ago that Johnny Carson was remarkably nervous. Always. He he would be tapping his leg under the desk and he'd be uh, holding that cigarette nervously. Only Ed McMahon could see it, being right next to him as his second banana. So when the first Tonight Show starring Johnny Carson was aired back sometime in 1962. Hank, you wouldn't believe who his three guests were. Can you imagine? Why would somebody be nervous when you're taking the stage for the first time as the host of The Tonight Show, taking over for the famous Jack Carr? It's your baby now. And his first three guests all on the first night were Joan Crawford, Groucho Marx, and oh. Mel Brooks. Oh, 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 oh. oh my God. <laughs> And, and at one point, then there was comedy needed. And uh, there's this guy, this Hank Garrett. He's a pretty funny guy, so they say. Tell us that story. How did that happen between you and Johnny Carson? Oh, my God. I was appearing at the Copacabana. And uh, someone made a phone call for me. And one of the people, uh, one of Johnny's people, came to see the show. And one of the things I did, I was doing a Puerto Rican airline pilot in my act. 
the greeny ladies and gentlemen, this is you, uh, uh, Martinez. I think my name is Martinez. Just a minute, please. Que me dicen, mi que seguro, no, no, no me quedando. Yes, this is uh, Senor Jose, and I'm going to fly the plane. We're going, uh, this is flight 602, which also happens to be the number for today. And if you look in front of you, you will notice a little white bag. That's your lunch. <laughs> you can get sick, but first you'll eat. Yes, so it went on like that. And then Johnny said, can, can you do a little bit of the Puerto Rican Airlines for a pilot? I said, sure, I'll do anything that you want, John. And he said, uh, I, I saw a clip of stuff that you do. You're a funny guy. And I said, Johnny, you're brilliant. And when we started doing the show and I looked at his hand and it was shaking. When he picked up the cigarette, his hand was shaking. And Ed said to me, don't make don't, no remarks about shaking or nervousness. He said, Johnny's as, as nervous today as the day he did the show, as the first day he did the show. And I got through and he gave me the thumbs up. That meant, yeah, you're coming back. And uh, he, he, was, he was an incredible guy. Brilliant, outstanding comedy mind. And uh, loved him. And boy, what a big shot. In fact, what happened to me I took the subway home. So now, as I get on the, the subway car and I, I sit down and a guy looks at me and says, you're funny. And I'm standing in the door and I'm saying, yeah, well, thank you. I, thank you. I, and I sit down. A woman gets on. <laughs> He's, the guy says, you're funny found out that he said that to everybody that stepped on the train. <laughs> <laughs> I'm taking bows. I'm ready to sign autographs. <laughs> oh, funny. Oh, funny. One of the other uh, people that you interviewed with or did stand up for, I'm not exactly sure, was Merv Griffin. And Gary and I were saying, oh, gosh, remember Merv Griffin and Arthur Treacher. Yes. I mean, how, how did you get along with Arthur Treacher? What was, what was that like working with Merv Griffin? Uh, very easy. Merv was also a wonderful entertainer, good, good singer. And with Arthur Treacher, who I had seen so many years in film, he said, sit down, my boy. And I sat next to him and he said, whatever Merv says to you, pay no attention. And Look at me, I'll tell you what to do. <laughs> I wasn't sure if it was serious. <laughs> I just uh, kind of nodded my head and sat there. He was wonderful. He was mm. wonderful. He said, were you, were you interviewed by Merv or did you do your routine or some of both? Do you remember? I, yeah, I, I did. We did a thing where uh, I would tell uh, a story and he would call a dialect oh yes so yes. i had to switch dialects in fact 
thank Sid Caesar. Yeah. I met Sid and I snuck in to see his show, the rehearsal. And I climbed the, the back stairs of the fire escape up to the roof and over and into the theater. And at one point I sat up in the back in the dark and Sid said something and I, abs I screamed out loud and Sid said, who's up there? And I stood up, he said, what are you doing up there? I said, what, watching you, Mr. Caesar. He said, come on down here. I want you sitting in front. I was a kid. And I said, okay. I thought, it, oh, now I'm in trouble. I'm going to get arrested. And he said, I make this promise to me. You only laugh when I say something. Forget them. They're not funny. <laughs> and he taught me dialectic gibberish and he and I would have conversations in different dialects and it was all gibberish I did it in my act mm. and I did uh, the, the Italian count all gibberish right and then Sid would I did that on, that was the week that was in London. And they would translate what I was saying. At, at one time, uh, oh God, wanted me to do a Chinese delivery man. And they said, go crazy. Forget the audience, just go nuts. Go into the audience and hand out chopsticks. I said, really? He said, yeah. Well, I walk on stage and he no MSG. And it became a, a, a signature that, that a, they would introduce me each week and I would do a piece of dialectic gibberish and then just take off. <laughs> and uh, all of thanks to Sid Caesar. And uh, a post-mortem thank you to Sid Caesar for those wonderful dialects. Now, I can imagine in 2022 how favorably reviewed that would be. <laughs> <laughs> because society has changed a bit. Right. There. And I still find those accents funny. But you know, Hank, and you know far better than I, there are places and times and contexts where you just have to be careful today. Oh, yes. Oh, God, yes. I was pre-warned a couple of times. Uh, don't do this or don't do that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. okay. We, we were watching a, an, an old rerun yesterday of Two Broke Girls, and they have a, a French chef there. And one of the Two Broke Girls uh, imitates a French accent. And she is terrible at it. And she does much of the same thing that you used to do. She goes, <laughs> And, and it means wow. nothing. <laughs> it just sounds like it could be French. <laughs> uh, you know, living, uh, living on the streets of Harlem, you heard all these wonderful sounds. And I was so impressed. Uh, 
Oh, you know that when you're living in New York, I've never even been to New York City. That's on my bucket list. I grew up on the West Coast and here I am in Florida. So it's easier for me to get up there. And I hope that Suzanne and I will sometime soon. In New York, it seems to me that both the challenge and the opportunity of living there beyond the financials there, uh, beyond the people's starry dreams, and some of them like you make it against improbable odds in the extreme. But when you're learning these accents, when you're learning about human relations, New York City is, is the ultimate melting pot because of the population density. There are blocks in the Bronx, one of my former co-workers told me, because he grew up in the Bronx, there are blocks in the Bronx with greater populations than incorporated cities with mayors and city councils and so forth for the whole town. And he's just looking up and down his neighborhood. It's that densely populated. You're going to learn a lot about life that way. Oh, yeah. It's the truth. Oh, absolutely. Uh, at one time, I, in fact, it's, I, I think it's in the book. Uh, coming home from school and my brother, my half brother, I was a very little boy, and we turned onto the block and I saw my furniture on the street. And I just looked at my brother Saul and I said, What happened? And so my mother and father, my mother was crying, and a couple of neighbors were trying to console her. We didn't have the rent, and out came the furniture. They just dispossessed us. Mm. Mm. And my father spoke to a gentleman, an Irish gentleman, uh, who was lived in the neighborhood. And he said, Sam, I'm going to make a couple of phone calls. I don't want you to leave him. Just hang out here. He went and made a couple of phone calls. And next thing, our furniture was being brought back into the house. This gentleman discovered that the building was a slum and our landlord was a slumlord. He never had anything repaired. We lived in substandard apartment. And the landlord came up to us, to, to my father, and apologized. He said, and Sam, don't, don't worry about the rent anymore. And this was the kind of thing that we grew up with, seeing all these incidents as part of your life. Yeah. So, yeah. Wow. Well, that, that has a big effect on you. One, one of the stories that Gary and I kind of got a, a, a laugh out of, having grown up that way, one of, the, one of the things that it did for you, it's like you could go left or you could go right. And, and what you did is you have spent a lot of time giving back, especially to at-risk children, to try and keep them off the streets, just the way you, you were at a crossroads. And you had Sammy Davis Jr. there for you. You've done the same thing. And one of the funniest stories in there was when you decided to, to say yes 
to doing a, a, a little bit of a, a, a show or a little bit of entertainment at Rikers Island. Oh, what yeah. happened at Rikers Island, <laughs> Hank? Rikers Island Prison. They came, uh, I, I was still at the Copacabana and the gentleman who was uh, the, the assistant warden said, uh, Mr. Garrett, we understand that you are from the streets of New York and you're now a success. I said, well, um, I've got a job if that's being a success. He said, uh, can you come to the Rikers Island prison and just speak to the gentleman there? And I said, sure, I'd, I'd be very happy to. Well, the warden addresses the prisoners and he says, we have a gentleman here today uh, who is appearing at the Copacabana with Tony Bennett. And he would like to spend a few minutes with you. And here he is, Hank Garrett. I step on stage and I hear, hey, Hank, how you doing, baby? <laughs> <laughs> and one of the guys yelled, hey, what? give him a number. He belongs here with us. <laughs> said, you know these felons? I said, yeah, I grew up with them. He went, oh, dear God. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that ahead. is a great story. You're going there to, to talk to these, these guys in prison and here they were people that you knew from your youth, which really just shows that connection and the authenticity of your having grown up in the streets. And as I said, some go left, some go right. Well, those guys, you know, they ended up staying in crime and then doing the time in prison you made the choice to get out of that lifestyle and you know the road was quite a bit different from the road that they had but very funny that that it caught up with you at Rikers Island and Gary <laughs> got a good laugh out of that well you know you and your your former neighbors there you all made it to Rikers Island but it turned out poignantly that you came in through separate doors Right. Yeah, it reminds me. It reminds yeah. me of something. I may not get all the words exactly right. I want to get this in before we take our break. There, Truman Capote and Suzanne found this quite poignant. Truman Capote told one of the killers in the uh, in his book and then the movie in Cold Blood. Truman Capote said to them, "I am a lot like you. We have so much in common. Yeah. It's like you went out the back door of a house and I came in the front door. But in many ways, we are so similar." Yes. Yeah. Oh. It's a so, truth. Yeah, well, you got out of that. The it, universe. I've said this about you before, Hank. I, I truly feel this. It's like God, Spirit, the universe. There, whoever's in charge up there, they had something better for you in mind. And really, all it took, though it took a lot inside you, what was required was for you to say yes to another way to live. Oh boy! Yeah. And you did. It's, it's you did. true. I. But it wouldn't have happened had I not experienced the other side. Uh, fighting all the time, packing a piece, a gun, uh, at the age of 12. I'd fight anyone, anything. I didn't care. I, I just didn't care how many times I was beaten up. Uh, boy, yeah, yeah. I think mostly because I didn't want to hurt my mom. 
And I think that kind of drove me onto a narrow road because the other road was wide open and begging me to, to come along and join in. But I, I sure didn't want to hurt this little old lady. With that, let's take our break, Gary. Absolutely. The, um, the tough times and the glory of Hank Garrett. He is an endless reservoir of stories. And we've narrowed them down to his personal life, Rikers Island, and show business. So <laughs> with that in mind, <laughs> we still have plenty of stories to come. We are Manson Mitchell. Hank Garrett is our honored guest of this hour. And we're going to hear more stories about a man who went right when he could have gone so wrong and thereby hangs the tale. We'll be right back. You're listening to AM 1150, and we're glad you're with us. Stay tuned. Hi, everybody. This is Anson Williams from Happy Days, and I'm so excited to tell you about American Road. It is the best car travel magazine in the world. They have the most fantastic adventures detailed in each magazine with all your itinerary. We could just jump in the car with your family and have the most fabulous adventures you've ever had in your life. Please get a copy of American Road and start your own adventure. Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to manceandmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash Mitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world fame, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is ManceAndMitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 AM or streaming live from your computer anywhere. Terry Loving wants to help you with your online marketing challenges right now. She has several courses she is giving away to help you get your business working for you online. Yes, giving away. WordPress websites are her specialty, yet her technical skills go way beyond that. Check out her blog at terryloving.com or email her directly at terry at terryloving.com. That's terry at terryloving.com. On Friday, Manson Mitchell welcomed Hank Garrett, the last surviving actor from Car 54, Where Are You?, to talk about his book, From Harlem Hoodlum to Hollywood Happy. On Saturday, Nicole Strickland discusses doing ghost research the effective and ethical way. She calls this tutorial Ghost Research 101, and you'll learn a lot. Bringing you mastery and mystery since 2007. We are Manson Mitchell, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on Alternative Talk, AM 1150. Find out the latest about your favorite shows on Alternative Talk 1150. Check out 1150kknw.com. Welcome back to Manson Mitchell and our very special guest this hour, Hank Garrett, the last surviving member of Car 54, Where Are You? Funniest, funniest show. I can remember watching it as a, <laughs> as a kid and just laughing and laughing at all the antics going on there. His book is... From Harlem Hoodlum to Hollywood Heavyweight. This is a book which is filled, filled, 
from start to finish with absolutely wonderful stories about Hank's life and all his celebrity encounters. And we are lucky enough to have Hank here with us for the fourth time because the book is that rich and we keep finding more things to talk about. (laughs) And so uh, get his book, From Harlem Hoodlum to Hollywood Heavyweight, Hank Garrett. In fact, if they're... If someone is interested, it's harlemhoodlum.com. Ah, thank oh, you. There I you was going to ask you that. Harlemhoodlum.com is where you can get more information about Hank. Thank you for mentioning that. I, I appreciate oh, it. You. Excellent. And Suzanne brought this up, and I'd like to follow through with it. Ladies and gentlemen, we're, we're a boomer show. Lots of boomers listen to us. So you will, you'll probably be able to name the gentleman before I'm through with my description. But during the late 1960s and early 1970s, on American television, there was a legend in the making who used to come out there. There was a live studio audience, and this was an interview show. It was fascinating for the highbrow quality quality of the conversation. And it was hosted by a man who would come out wearing a blue double-breasted suit, carrying a clipboard. And I think just about every time he used to open his show the same way. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the festivities. And that man was David Frost. David Frost. Mm-hmm. Most famous for the Watergate interviews with Richard Nixon. Yes. Yes. It was an extraordinary event in itself and the subject of a Ron Howard movie. There so David Frost, yes. Prior to coming to our shores, however, and I think uh, Suzanne was reminding me that this show could be seen in America, though I did not view it, but I'm told that it was available to us. That was the week that was. When you watch that show, it seemed like, you know, you look back on it, Hank, and I think that in a way that show, particularly bringing a guy like you on doing the dialects and these characters, that was a bit of a forerunner to Rowan and Martin's laugh in because of the style. Wow. I was, I mean, oh, yes, yes, yes. Now that you call attention to it, you're absolutely right. And so you could go crazy out there. And David Frost, who was a very sophisticated, well-read, politically minded gentleman, knew how to have a good time in the British manner. And he put on this show that was a phenomenon in its own right. And it drew this kid from New York to London. That's amazing in itself. How did that happen, Hank? How did you get from here to there and for how long were you there in the audience at the copa oh I've, I've, so much happened at the copa at the copa copa cabana no there was a british actor and whose name escapes me at the moment peter eustonoff it's peter oh we just read you. it in the book <laughs> <laughs> thank you thank you thank you so peter uh laughed at the stuff I did and came backstage and said, uh, you were brilliant. You know, he said, I love the, the dialectic stuff you did. And I said, well, thanks, said Caesar. He said, stop thanking other people. It's you. So I, okay. He said, listen, I'm going to, I've been offered a show in London. I can't make it because I've got movie commitments he said would you be interested in my submitting you i said are you serious he said yes absolutely and all you're going to do is come out no you won't have a script 
just come out and do a bunch of dialectic nonsense that that you do he says and peter will translate i said yeah of course well i was with the william morris agency they were my agents at the time and they handled all, all the details and off i was going to london I stayed at a hotel in Kensington High, and Peter, every once in a while, took the cast to Paris. It, uh, David Frost, not Peter Ustinov. David Frost David used to Frost. take him to, right, right, to, took you to Paris. Oh. And being in those restaurants with David Frost in your party, this was the influence of that man. You got four-star service and you write in the book that if david frost had not been along you would have been lucky to even get a seat (laughs) (laughs) i remember with one of the exclusive french restaurants and they said uh oh yes monsieur and what uh, would you like to have and i just said uh i i don't uh, oh i don't know uh it's so looking at this menu and there's so many things and I said, uh, I'll have a chicken sandwich. Yes, and what else? Would you like to have a drink? I said, I, I don't drink alcohol. What? I said, I, I don't drink alcohol. Oh, okay. Do you just want a sandwich? And I said, yes. Monsieur, this is not a delicatessen. Oh, wow. Look at the menu. Maybe perhaps uh, this is the wrong restaurant for you. <gasps> wow. And I went, oh, and David called the guy over and whispered in his ear. The guy disappeared. Another waiter came out. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That's when you've got clout. Yeah. That oh, is for yeah. sure. I've always been a great admirer as interviewers, as hosts. I've had the greatest admiration throughout my life, really, for David Frost and Dick Cavett. These two gentlemen, anybody in the world of any significance whatsoever, they knew how to get out of them information that the guest did not plan to reveal. But you could be seduced into saying things that the interviewer and the audience wanted to hear, regardless of your intentions as the guest. (laughs) Yeah, he was that good. (laughs) <laughs> and you were there quite a while in, in your book. You say that you were there for 18 months. Well, that's a long time to be out of the United States. And when that show was over, that was the week that was, you came back. And then what happened? Oh, I was a new face in town. Mm. Uh, I would call a lot of the casting people. And they, the people who answered the phone, they said, uh, yes, may, may I help you? And I said, yeah, uh, would you tell so-and-so that Hank Garrett called? Uh, said, I said, well, he's no longer with us. I said, well, who's doing the casting? And they would mention a name. And I said, well, would you tell them that a Hank Garrett called? And just a moment. And... Uh, They'd come back and say, uh, the Hank Garrett? I said, yeah. 
where have you been? He said, uh, the William Morris Agency, we couldn't get any information from them at all. And I said, they knew I was in London. But I went through that. And finally, uh, a couple of other casting people started calling. Said, you know, we're happy that you're back in town. And yeah, we can get you this. And uh, the, when I was with the Morris office, and I realized that, that they did nothing about letting people know where I was. And one night, the entire Morris office was at the Copa. And I said, uh, you know, I said, did you hear about the guy who commits the perfect crime? He killed his wife signed with the Morris office and he was never heard from again. <laughs> I got my release the next day. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and everybody has their pathway to getting there if they are going to get there. And when they do, they, they bring themselves with themselves to the job. And I put it in those terms, Hank, because as just one example, and this is someone for whom you have admiration, and, and maybe there was some interaction between you two. I'm thinking of Uncle Milty, Milton Berle. Oh. Sid Caesar was on the Today Show many years ago, and he was asked about working with Milton Berle. And he said, the thing about Milton Berle is that if he was on stage with you, and he is supposed to exit the stage, Milton Berle would leave the stage and just before he goes behind the curtain, he would turn around and look at the audience and make some funny face or do something to pull attention away because he was determined to milk every moment on stage for all it was worth. Absolutely. He did that to me. He did. I, he was in the audience. I was doing a show and uh, I was warned. You know, if you want to, you can introduce him, but don't let him get up on stage. And I stupidly said, and, and sitting in the audience is Mr. Milton Burrow. He got up and came up on stage and he did a line and everyone booed him. Really? He said to me, Stick around, kid. Let me show you how show how comedy should be done. And the audience, and I just stood there, egg on my face, and the audience booed him. Wow! Wow! He could not get a smile because I was doing well up until that point, and I said, "Oh." Yeah. And, <clears throat> a man who's so dear to my heart, one of the great comedians of all time. Mm. Wow. <laughs> yeah, do you want to put a camper on that? Because I want to go to the next thing. Oh, I just say that the, somebody who was famous for introducing people, but I think they knew better than to cross him, Hank, and that was the great Ed Sullivan. He would introduce people. He'd see them in the audience. He'd have them stand up. The spotlight would be on them. People would applaud, but they weren't going to jump up on Ed Sullivan's stage. I guess try, not. not if they intended to have yeah. a career afterward. Yeah. And so um, there are just things that you do and things that you don't do. And, <laughs> 
And, and you learned those. It seems to me with your, with your career working comedy, you were at the Apollo Theater. That must have felt lonely the first time. But you had your backers. You had your friends, Nipsey Russell, for example. But doing this, you just have to be willing to learn the ropes. And I wonder yes. sometimes, Hank, about how many great careers died, became a cropper, simply because of things like you didn't know how to handle a heckler, maybe. I don't mean you. I mean Joe Blow, the comedian. He wants to make it big in entertainment. He thinks he's funny. He's going to be a comedian until the first time you get heckled. Now you're confronted with a challenge that, in my view, is actually antisocial behavior. People buy a ticket. They go in. You have many people around you wanting to watch a show. They're not there for the heckler. They're there for the performer. Right. And yet, in our culture, it's, it's considered okay to heckle to a point. And Michael Richards, remember Kramer? He found out the hard way what happens oh, when you go straight wow. at hecklers. Yes. So there's that to contend with as well. And how did you handle that? I had a heckler uh, in Canada, and I, I mentioned, uh, and he wouldn't stop. But he didn't make fun of me. He said he would rate the jokes. That's a good one. Oh, that's oh, that's at ninety five percent. Yes. And I looked at him and I said, uh, "Excuse me, are you in show business?" He said, "No, no." I said, "What do you want tonight? Come on up." I brought him up on stage. Oh my gosh! And he took the mic and he went. Uh, but, uh, but I said, "Exactly." Uh, <laughs> uh, 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 Right. You can go sit down now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I um in your in the intro that I gave you, I had mentioned that uh, and we've talked about this before a little bit that you were had a very memorable role on 3 Days of the Condor. You actually broke Robert Redford's nose uh in a very brutal fight scene which is rated the top fight scene on film of all time. But what I but what Gary and I were reading in your book and were so intrigued by was this idea of being so closely affiliated with a role that you had that it follows you into your personal life. And you tell a story in your book about a couple of men that came up to you at the JFK airport. And I wanted you to tell oh, that story. Yes. Oh, wow. Yeah. They, I, they I, brought I, you in a little room. Mr. Garrett, would you uh, come with us, please? Or sir, would you come with us, please? Yes. And, and, and Gary and I, in reading this, I said to Gary, they must have thought that he was the person from three days of the condor and, and not an actor. So how did that turn out? Well, uh, you're right. Uh, I'm standing online about to board a plane. Uh, and two men came over and one did the talking. One was on one side of me and the other. Uh, they split up as, as they came around. They didn't stand together. And uh, they said, sir, uh, can we speak to you for a moment? I said, I've got to board this plane. They said, don't worry about the plane. I said, what are you talking about? They identified themselves as FBI agents. Ah, yeah. 
And uh, they said, can you come with us, sir? And uh, don't reach for your bag. We'll take care of it. And the gentleman on my right reached, grabbed my, my bag, because I had checked my other stuff. And we went into a room. And I said, what is this about? They said, we'll tell you in a moment, sir. I came into this room and sat down. And they didn't say another word to me. They just, one stood near the window, the other stood near the door. And I'm really starting to sweat. They're thinking I'm somebody that I'm not. Uh, they asked me if I had a passport and I said, no, I don't need a passport to go fly from one state to another. What, do you have identification? I took out my wallet. And why am I answering all these questions of these two guys that I don't know just because they have IDs that said FBI? Another gentleman came in and he looked, he looked at me and said, what is your name, sir? I said, Hank Garrett. And what do you do? I said, I'm an actor, actor, comedian. And he just looked skyward. And he looked at these two guys and he said, do you realize who this is? And they said, uh, well, he mentioned an actor. He said, there is a film that the FBI have been watching and is how an assassin gets into a place to do his business. He says, he's, this gentleman is part of the training film. I didn't know. And it was, here's a guy disguised as a mailman who is killing all these people because it's the uniform that sold his entrance. And they just looked at me and he said, sir, please forgive. Uh, we'll get you on a private plane to wherever you want to go. Uh, they just mistook you for the character in three days of the Condor. Yeah. Yeah. I said, I don't know, should I be flattered or frightened? <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. There, and that's, that brings up some, gosh, there's so many questions I want to ask you and yeah. about so many people with whom you had the honor of working and vice versa. But what I wanted to uh, ask you as we're closing this hour, and there will be other such hours, you're an endless reservoir of stories <laughs> you. there, but you know, you have something in common, it seems to me, with character actors like, I'm reaching back in my memory here, Paul L. Smith is one, and Doug Hutchison is the other. Paul Smith was the brutal, sadistic guard in Midnight Express. And we have uh, Doug Hutchison, who was the sadistic Percy in The Green Mile. The, the experiences you have had, Hank, remind me of those two gentlemen, because like you, they would go out in public. There, and in the case of both of them, there would be somebody who took the movie a little too seriously yes. and they would be approached. Oh, so you think you're a tough guy. Take me on. See if you can beat me up. 
And so you go out and this happened to you in London. I'm sure it happened to you in the streets of America where you're just doing your thing, but people feel like you need a challenger. Absolutely. As a matter um, of fact, you were talking about going to Mexico and somebody said, don't go. Oh, absolutely. Uh, my, my wife was going to visit a friend in Mexico and we were offered uh, two weeks or a week staying at this lovely estate. And a friend of mine, uh, when I was a cop for about a minute and a half, uh, he became an FBI agent. And I, every once in a while, I'd speak to him. And I told him about the plans of going to Mexico. He said, you don't go, Hank. I said, why? He said, Condor was the biggest hit in Mexico. The minute you step off a plane in Mexico, you're going to be kidnapped. I don't care who you're with or who you know. They're going to kidnap you because you're a celebrity. I said, a celebrity. I played a you know, killer in a movie. He said, it's the biggest film in Mexico. I wow. did not go. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I'm glad you, you took that approach, took that seriously. Oh, frightening. Yeah. I, yeah. It, in, I did Serpico. In Serpico, I play a, a really sadistic cop, Muscles Malone. And I beat up this kid who was brought in by Serpico. And I uh, hit him with a phone book. Well, I was with, this is before I married to uh, Deanna Marie. And I'm with this young lady and we're walking out of the theater and a guy comes up to me and there are two other guys, either two or three other guys with him. And he, he said, hey man, can I talk to you? And I look and I push her aside and I kind of fall back. Uh, my martial arts training came up and I said, yeah, what 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 do you want to talk to me about we've got 30 seconds hank oh he said uh, well you, you beat up on that brother in uh, serpico i said yes he said and as he leaned into me i got ready and i said uh i just got into a position and he said to me that is so cool, man. What a <laughs> fight, man. Wow. And then I looked and I said to my chest, okay, you can start again. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. But always ready. That's Hank Garrett. And always ready with great stories. Hank, we're going to have you back soon because there are, I've got a list of questions I couldn't get to in the space of an hour, but we'll do it next time. You oh. look well, you sound great, and we look forward to talking to you again, sir. Thank you, thank you, thank you for having me. All Our right. Pleasure. We'll be in touch, and we have uh, at 1 o'clock this afternoon Pacific Time American Road Trip Talk with host Gary Mance. See you then, everybody.